0: You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If
1: you're stuck in a relationship
2: quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you
3: can't ask
4: on the Savage Lovecast.
5: You jinxed us, Associated Press. On April 17th, the AP reported that laws aimed at rolling back LGBT civil rights weren't getting anywhere, despite broad Republican majorities in many anti-gay states. Quote, major legislation curtailing LGBT rights has been completely stymied in state capitals around the country this year, amid anxiety by Republican leaders over igniting economic backlash if they are depicted as discriminatory, wrote David Crary, national news reporter for the AP. Quote, LGBT activists were tracking about one hundred and twenty proposed bills that they viewed as threats to their civil rights. Not one of them has been enacted as many sessions now wind down. Only two remain under serious consideration. Well, those two anti gay laws seem to have passed last week. An anti gay adoption bill was signed into law in Oklahoma, and that state's Republican governor immediately signed it and an anti gay adoption law also passed in Kansas and that state's Republican governor has promised to sign it into law. I don't know if these were the two bills making their way that the AP was referring to in their report, but here we are, 120 proposed anti-LGBT laws, down in flames, two passed. Both do pretty much the same thing. They don't make it illegal for same-sex couples to adopt, which is crazy unconstitutional, as some other states have learned. They just make it legal for private religious adoption agencies to discriminate against same-sex couples. Courthouse News summarizes the Kansas statute, which is identical to Oklahoma's. Kansas lawmakers stayed up late Thursday into early Friday morning to pass a law that protects adoption agencies that refuse to serve LGBT couples because of religious beliefs. The Kansas Adoption Protection Act allows faith-based adoption agencies, ding, 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 some of which receive public funding to reject LGBT applicants without losing support from the Kansas Department for Children and Families. Public funding. That is the twist of the knife here. Private religious groups that work to find homes for kids in state care, kids in foster care, receive money from the state. Public funding. Tax dollars. LGBT people pay taxes. We are part of that public. And then the state turns around and hands public money, including our money, over to agencies that discriminate against lgbt individuals couples and families for religious reasons which is kind of unconstitutional and we'll see you in court oklahoma and kansas it is important as we discuss these bills not to lose sight of the real victims anti-lgbt politicians in oklahoma and kansas took a stand against lgbt people and lgbt civil equality but if you look down at what they're standing on it's not queer people it's kids Kids in foster care who need homes. According to the Oklahoma Foster Initiative, on any given day, there are more than 350 children who are legally free and waiting for adoptive families, and more than 1,000 other children in state custody that day who will soon be legally free and waiting for adoptive families. And 40% of these children waiting to be adopted in Oklahoma are over 12 years old. Hard to place, kids. Right now, there are currently 5,000 kids in foster care in Kansas, and nearly 1,000 are ready to be adopted. Most are over the age of 10, so again, hard to place, as they say in the adoption biz. Here's the thing about same-sex couples who adopt children. Talk to any social worker, any adoption agency, and they will tell you the same thing. Same-sex couples are likelier to adopt hard-to-place kids than opposite-sex couples are more open to adopting kids who are older, kids who are HIV positive, kids who've had alcohol or drug exposure, and kids who are interracial, who are often the hardest to place. Opposite-sex couples, even opposite-sex couples who are open about the fact that they are adopting, often want to casually pass their kids off as their own biological kids, so they don't have to answer a lot of questions at the grocery store or on an airplane. Same-sex couples, we can't pass our kids off as our biological kids for. Obvious reasons, and we are less concerned about passing and therefore more open to adopting interracial kids. Gays and lesbians in Kansas and Oklahoma and six other states with similar laws currently on the books are free to adopt through secular agencies, private agencies, private adoptions, surrogacy, adopt out of state, and also free to move to states that don't endorse this kind of discrimination and don't ask their LGBT citizens to underwrite private religious organizations that are hostile to their civil rights, to the very existence of LGBT people. Kids in foster care in Oklahoma and Kansas, they don't have that luxury. They can't opt into some other agency. They can't move to another state, to a state that isn't making it harder for them to find loving, permanent homes and loving adoptive parents. They are the real victims here. They are the people Republicans in Oklahoma and Kansas are attacking. Look down, Kansas and Oklahoma legislatures. Look down at the neck you are standing on. It's not the neck of a gay couple that wishes to adopt. It is the neck of a 10-year-old child who wishes to have a home. All right. Before we get to the show, itmfa.org. Go to itmfa.org or impeachthemotherfuckeralready.com and get yourself some ITMFA t-shirts, buttons, stickers, lapel pins, hats. All proceeds benefit the American Civil Liberties Union, the International Refugee Assistance Project, and Planned Parenthood. We've donated more than $200,000 to these agencies already. And we have a new line of pride ITMFA wear for June. You're going to want to get some. The fun of ITMFA Of course, as people see you wearing something that says ITMFA on it and they will ask you, what does that stand for? And you get to tell them, impeach the motherfucker already. And then you've made a brand new friend. Or if you're in Oklahoma or Kansas, maybe a brand new enemy itmfa.org. Get a t-shirt. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your Qs, lots of my A's on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, which is free and with ads, on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast, twice as long and no ads. Subscribe at savagelovecast.com. All that coming up on today's show.
0: Hi, Dan. I'm a mid to late 20s female calling about my relationship with my mom and her partner. My mom and dad are divorced. When I was in high school, my mom's boyfriend of a couple years at that point tried to videotape me getting undressed without my knowledge. Uh, And long story short, I was able to find the video. And so nothing happened on that particular occasion that I know about. But he was able to convince her at the time that it was all an accident him leaving the camera on in my bedroom and she believed him so a couple of years later it it came out that he molested his niece and at that time my sister and i tried to convince our mom to leave him and after a lot of yelling and crying she decided that she was going to stay with him and see him through his treatment so he went through probably a couple years of psychology, but he never served any time or received any charges. And now it's been eight years and my sister has refused to see him in that time. And I have now seen him on a couple of occasions where he and I have had a talk about what happened. And he seems very forthright and sincere. And my mom, has been wishing that he was more a part of our lives and that he could be in the house when we come to visit her, because for years we we have refused to see him. And so my question is, I know that I don't have to forgive him. It's clear that my mom is never going to leave him. So there continues to be really weird tension between my mom, my sister, myself regarding him. and. I I don't feel like I can trust him. It would be nice to be able to be in the same room with him. I know I don't have to forgive him, but is it worth considering?
5: I suppose it would be nice to be able to be in the same room with this guy. I think the room I would want to be in with this guy is the visitation room at the funeral home at his wake when that comes. Maybe that's when you could be in the same room with this guy. Yeah, your mom. I'm surprised you're willing to be in the same room with your mom, but not really. And I want to sort of zoom out for a second and talk about a larger issue here, which is probably impacting your mother's choices in an enormous way, which is the fear and terror that so many people have of being alone. People will stay in relationships that are terrible. It's why I had to coin DTMFA because so many of the letters that I get and so many of the calls that I began getting when we started the podcast 10 years ago – from people who were in relationships that it was obvious to everyone but them that they had to get out of. But so great is the fear and terror of being alone that people will not leave those relationships because what if they never meet anybody else again? That means they're a loser. Or what if they're economically dependent on their partner? What if they are physically dependent on their partner in some way where the fear and terror of being alone is not just loserdom that so many people associate with singlehood, but incapacity or not being able to get through the day, not being able to house or feed or clothe yourself. There are lots of reasons. Some legit that people stay in terrible relationships, but a lot of people choose to stay in terrible relationships or choose to stay in relationships that are fine for them, but terrible for everybody else that they claim to love because they just can't see their way clear. They just can't conceive of themselves as a happy single person. So they stay in a relationship with someone who, even if they don't make them miserable directly, kind of bank shot make them miserable by driving off children, siblings, parents, friends, and isolating them. The relationship that your stepdad has with your mom doesn't sound abusive. Perhaps it's manipulative. Perhaps your mother is emotionally abused, but they certainly do sound codependent in some way that is unhealthy. And, I think you and your sister have been very generous in that you only cut him out of your lives and not your mother who chose to stay with this person and accept the bullshit, transparently bullshit lie that he laid out after he got caught accidentally leaving his video camera running in your bedroom when you were still living at home and a dependent child yeah, no, and that your mother would accept that and side with him in that dispute was really a betrayal of you and a failure on your mother's part to live up to her first responsibility as a parent, which is to your health and emotional safety and sexual safety, and that she chose to stay with this guy who then later came out was indeed a sexual predator, which is the big fat fucking red flag that went up when you found that videotape. Yeah, it doesn't cloak your mother in glory. It really doesn't. And I don't think your sister should feel guilty about the conditions that she's laid out for seeing your mom. And I don't think that you should feel guilty. The fact that you're willing to be in the room with this guy occasionally I think is exceedingly generous. You two have behaved compassionately. And your compassion has been directed at someone, your mother, who is deserving of it, despite her shortcomings and her failures as a parent. And that's where compassion comes into play. When you come through for someone, when you show them the love and consideration and concern that perhaps at times they have failed to show you. And that's always a two way street. We are failed by the people we love and we fail the people that we love. And compassion is the spackle that can fill those cracks, but a predator step parent That is a crack that there's not enough spackle, emotional spackle, compassion spackle at the high emotional IQ hardware store to fill. So I endorse the status quo. You see your mother, your sister sees your mother. You're willing to be in the room with that man occasionally and incidentally. Your sister is not willing to be in a room with that man. That is her choice. Those are her boundaries. I think they are perfectly legitimate and perfectly appropriate and perfectly compassionate.
2: Hi, Dan. I'm a 34-year-old white gay man currently seeing someone who's Asian. Most of the men that I've dated and or hooked up with have been Asian and have been accused of having an Asian fetish and being a rice queen. The guy I'm seeing clearly has an issue with this and occasionally brings it up. It doesn't seem to be anything concrete that I do or say, but he doesn't like the idea of it. I actually don't like it either. I mean, neither Asian fetish nor rice queen are positive terms in any way, but I don't know what to do about it. He said that I should actively try to hook up with non-Asian guys, even if I don't find them so attractive that I would hook up with them otherwise. His theory is that this is going to eventually change who I'm attracted to so that it's more distributed proportionally across racial groups. This sounds like a lot of work to me, and I'm not sure I would want to have sex with guys I wouldn't normally want to have sex with. I don't want to be a rice queen or have an Asian fetish, and I'd love to be equally attracted to everyone, but is that a thing you can change?
5: Nope. Not a thing that you can change. Of course, as I've said many, many times, we should examine our own desires and the types of people that we're attracted to and interrogate that, as they say in college campuses, to make sure that they are actually our desires and we are actually pursuing the people we ourselves are actually attracted to because the culture, there are beauty standards and the culture writes a script for us about who we're supposed to want and why we're supposed to want them. And, There is jockeying for status in dating and mating and settling down and sometimes you want what other people want just for the bragging rights, just for the social status of it. So you can be high on the relationship hierarchy and that can result in people being in relationships with or married to and scrambling their DNA with people that they are not physically attracted to but others are. My go-to example is always the guy who's into big women and is too embarrassed or ashamed to be honest about that and marry some skinny bitch – that he's not really into and sleeps with and makes the big women that he's attracted to feel terrible, because he hides them and they're on the side, and doesn't work out for anybody. But if you have interrogated your desires and they are yours, and if you desire people who are outside the mainstream beauty standards, cultural script, they're probably likelier to actually be your authentic desires, then you just have to accept that. If you were a white guy and only slept with other white guys. If you were to dick about that publicly, if you weren't putting no fats, no femmes, no Asians, no blacks, just my preferences on your Grinder profile and you just dated a string of white guys, no one would notice. You probably wouldn't even notice. You wouldn't think to interrogate that. You wouldn't be made to feel self-conscious about that. It's a little ironic that a lot of white gay men get grief for only dating other white gay men and along come the white gay men who are attracted to – because they are authentically, legitimately attracted to – men of other races or men of a particular race, and then they're bagged on for fetishizing. As that's what you have to be careful of and conscious of, not to fetishize. It is fine to objectify people. Everyone does it. Everyone is initially pulled towards someone in a bar, in a club, on the street. And please don't hit on people on the street just because you find them attractive on the street. Take it to the bars and the clubs. And the apps initially pulled to other people by visual cues. And that's fine. We, approach, we are objects in this world, moving through this world. Objects with agency and humanity and multiple dimensions. If you are only attracted to Asian guys for the Asian surface and you can't see them as human beings, that's a problem. That's objectification and then it stops. And you're not able to tap into somebody's humanity. You don't see them as a human being. You see them as a thing. If you are doing that, that is a problem. And you should stop doing that. There are guys out there into big women who treat big women like sofas, like objects, like things. That's not okay. If you're attracted to big women and you also see them as human beings, as three-dimensional human beings with an inner life and agency and desire and goals and insecurities and hurt and skills and genius, whatever, that's fine. And you shouldn't feel guilty about it. And I don't think that you should feel guilty about this. And I don't think you have to like run out and suck a 100 – white dicks to absolve yourself of the sin of being attracted to Asian guys. So long as you're not fetishizing, so long as there isn't anything about the, your expectations sexually that tells Asian guys that you see them in a certain role that is influenced by racist stereotypes about Asian passivity or Asian men all being bottoms or whatever else. then there's nothing that you should feel bad about. And again, if you were a white guy sleeping with white guys and only white guys, Unless you were being a dick about it, and a lot of white guys out there are being dicks about that, most people wouldn't notice or get on your case about it. That said, all of that said, so much of that said, here I am, pasty white, translucent white, you can see the blue in my veins through my arms, talking to another white guy about whether this is okay or not. So I invite my Asian listeners, my gay male Asian listeners, gay and bi male Asian listeners in particular, to give us a call 206-302-2064. Share your feelings.
3: Hey, Dan. I'm a straight man in my mid-50s. I lost my wife to cancer about eight months ago. We had almost 30 years of happy monogamous marriage and raised three great kids together. Naturally, I was devastated by this loss, but I had a long time to grieve through my wife's decline. I cared for her and watched that fucking disease slowly destroy her body for two horrible years. About three months after my wife passed away, I was ready to try dating. After a few crazy months, I found a wonderful woman who's a great match for me. We've been dating for about four months, and it's been really, really great. My relationship with my girlfriend has kept me from sliding into depression. The only problem is my 18-year-old daughter is having a really hard time accepting the idea of me dating. She doesn't want to hear about it at all, and has made it clear that she's very uncomfortable having my girlfriend around. This hasn't really been a problem because my daughter's been away at college, but when she comes home this summer... It'll really suck if I can't invite my girlfriend over or even acknowledge her existence without my daughter freaking out. So, Dan, how do you suggest I handle this situation? I want my daughter to feel comfortable in my home, and I do understand her feelings, of course. Is it reasonable of me to expect my daughter to accept my girlfriend at this point? Or should I just suck it up and keep my dating life a secret until she goes back to college in the fall?
5: First, I'm so sorry for your loss. I'm so sorry for all four of you and everything that you lost, you and your three children, my sympathies. It's important to bear in mind, uh, I think when you're a parent in a situation like this, that two years and eight months ago, you made the transition from spouse to caregiver. As you said, you, you began to grieve this impending loss and you transitioned from one role to another two years, eight months ago. At some point during those two years and eight months, when it became clear that this was terminal, you really made that transition. You do begin to grieve The death of a spouse when you know your spouse's death is imminent. When the intimacy becomes very different, that shift in the roles and who you are and what you mean to each other is so profound and it accelerates in a certain way, the grieving process. You were already grieving the loss of your wife before your wife died. Your daughter didn't go from mothered to motherless two years and eight months ago. Didn't go from mothered to motherless at some point during your wife's decline She went from mother to motherless eight months ago. She needs some more time to grieve the loss of her mother. I think you need to have a conversation with your daughter, perhaps with the help of a therapist or a counselor who can mediate, where you talk about your different experiences of your wife's death and her mother's death. You are further along in the grieving process than she is because you grieved for so much during your wife's decline and before her death. It is unreasonable of your daughter to expect you never to date ever again. It would be loving of you to accommodate where your daughter is at in her grieving process by giving her a little bit more space and giving her a little bit more time without having to lie to her, without having to pretend that you're not dating anyone else, but to roll out the new girlfriend slowly and to allow your daughter to feel the shit out of her feelings, including her feelings of anger. And there are things you need to say to your daughter that you will have a life going forward just as she will have a life going forward, that you will have intimacy and connections going forward just as she will have intimacy and connections going forward. You will have potentially a wife again and your life will go on. She will never have a mother again. It's not about putting your loss on the scales and her loss on the scales and trying to figure out which is heavier, which is the greater loss. It's about acknowledging the differences in the way you two are going to experience and grieve your losses, which are different and separate. Losing a mother, losing a spouse, different experiences of loss and grief. And I think if you can say that to her and you can say that to each other and you can be, since you're further along in the grieving process, someone that she can lean on, someone that she can open up to, and that she sees that you are giving her a little bit more time and space, not giving her endless time and endless space. Because just as her life will go on, your life will go on. So this summer when she's home, you have a girlfriend. I think first month, maybe that first month you and your daughter can go see a counselor for a few sessions unless you want to do it over the phone and over Skype right now while she's at college, which might not be a bad idea. Maybe you could fly in for a weekend or fly in for a week. Go see your daughter at college. Talk to her about when she's going to have a lighter load. Don't go for finals week. Don't go for a week that's a party week. But if there's a week where there's a bit of breathing space to go in, fly in, have that conversation with a counselor with her or have it when she gets home. And then when she gets home, your girlfriend doesn't come around for a month or so, but go see your girlfriend and your daughter should know you're going to see your girlfriend. And then maybe July, mid July, she meets your girlfriend. And I think a little bit of, self-conscious performance of deference to your daughter and where she's at and her feelings and prioritizing her comfort at this moment when she's only eight months into the grieving process that you are nearly three years into will help your daughter come around, help her accept this woman's role in your life. And if you and this woman partner long-term, accept this woman's role in her life, not as mother, but as dad's girlfriend or dad's second wife again i'm so sorry for your loss i'm so sorry for your children uh, for all of for everything that all four of you have have lost you sound incredibly sensitive you sound like you have very high emotional iq i think emotional iq is gonna be the theme of this show i know that you can nail this i know that you can do it get on the phone with your daughter
6: Hey Dan, 29-year-old guy living on the East Coast calling. I've been dating my girlfriend for about three years and I mostly enjoy sex with her other than one big problem, which is that she is really not good at blowjobs. In fact, that's an understatement. It's pretty painful. Uh, She tends to use her teeth a lot where it's even left marks, so... I've tried to kind of tell her to cover her teeth, uh, that she doesn't need to go down so far that she can use her hand, but nothing's really worked. Uh, I'm worried about having her realize it's been bad for me for three years if I talk to her. So I'm trying to figure out what to do. I've considered showing her maybe some porn, but it's not super instructional. So is there anything left that I can do? Or am I doomed to have terrible blowjobs or maybe none at all? Thanks.
5: You don't say how old your girlfriend is, but I'm wondering if perhaps your girlfriend was giving blowjobs to my uncle in California in the 1970s. He's in a really popular sort of regional rock star band, huge in California, almost broke nationally. And there were a lot of groupies following his band around and he got a lot of blowjobs. And my uncle likes a particular kind of blowjob with a lot of teeth and a lot of biting. And a lot of the women who blew him, some the girls who blew him, had never blown a guy before. And he would always tell the women who he instructed how he liked to be blown that all guys like to be blown like this. Because it made him laugh to think about this woman giving a blowjob to somebody else and biting down on the dick and then discovering that his tastes blowjob wise are a minority taste. Anyway, if your girlfriend isn't in her 50s or 60s, odds are good that she wasn't blowing my uncle in the 70s. I don't think you should show her some porn. I think porn might be the problem. She's watching a lot of porn or she has seen porn or perhaps other boyfriends in the past have shown her porn. But that's so what bullshit is that? Other boyfriends in the past have shown her porn as if women don't watch porn. Women watch porn. She's probably watched porn on her own where the women deep throughout the dick and don't use their hands. Because that's not something that people want to see in porn. People want to see dicks all the way down throats. And a lot of people have this attitude that incorporating a hand into a blowjob to shorten the length of the cock is kind of a cop-out. That's something that porn promotes, that assumption. I believe porn is at the root of your problem. And your problem has been exacerbated by the fact that you didn't speak up sooner. And you weren't more prescriptive and, and, and clear sooner. Three years this has gone on. Three years of terrible blowjobs. Yes, now if you tell her you're going to have to retroactively downgrade all the blowjobs you got in the past to bad blowjobs. And that may make her feel terrible. Just like all those women out there who are faking orgasms for two or three or four or five or 15 or 20 years into a relationship or a marriage. Suddenly having to tell the husband that no, indeed, they have never come becomes a trap because you don't want to shatter this poor dude's ego. This guy who thought he was a pretty good lover because you were coming all these years suddenly discovering that you weren't coming at all ever Is a problem. Don't paint yourself into that corner. If the sex is bad, if something isn't working, don't pretend it's good. Don't tell the person they're bad at it. Tell the person what you need. What makes a blowjob good for you is subjective and personal. And the blowjob that she gives would be perfect for my uncle, not so good for you. And you can discuss it in a way that isn't scolding or shaming or finding fault or placing blame just like let me show you what works for me in the same way that i want and are we good to throw this out when you have a conversation like this in the same way that i want to know what works and how it works best for you and i want you to show me those things whenever you need to and not just to don't worry about giving me feedback i want feedback in the same way that i'm about to give you some feedback and you can give me the same sort of feedback and then tell her not to get your dick all the way down her throat. Tell her that there's something about her mouth and your dick when they come together that deep, that teeth are unavoidable, and it kind of makes a blowjob unpleasurable for you. So the wrapping a fist around the base of the dick, which is a totally legit move, and a lot of blowjobs in the real world, as opposed to the porn world, involve hands. Incorporate hands. A blowjob, the really best ones, the best ones I get and have gotten and like to think I've given, are kind of blowjob-handjob combo platter. And you should tell her that. And when you have that conversation with her, ask her for feedback. Is there anything that you've been doing that she's just been kind of allowing to go on because she's afraid of giving you feedback? And regard this convo as an opportunity for you to both check in about your sex life. Because maybe she's been holding some things back too for fear of telling you now that she's actually never had an orgasm during P.I.V. intercourse is going to upset you in the same way. You telling her three years in that all the blowjobs have been eh, not so good for you, is going to upset her. Hey, Dan. Nancy, and the sex
7: at rescued. I'm a mid twenties gay male living in the Midwest. Over the last six months or so, I have been getting increasingly close to a gay couple my age from a city about seven hours away. Despite our rocky start and some issues we are working through, I really started to get into love with these guys and I've been spending an increasingly large amount of time staying with them. I have two issues, though. The first is surrounding sex. It has been made clear to me that the expectation is that I am not allowed to have sex outside of whatever this is, but at the same time, I'm not getting any while I visit. To make matters worse, they tell me about the super hot sex they are having while they are having it, but only when I am literally in the middle of driving down to see them. This has happened several times in a row now, where I will be in my car, having fit a few days off in the row of my insanely busy schedule to come see them. And they send me graphic details of all the amazing sex they're having, with seeming no awareness of how that might look to me. I'm glad they're having a great time and have a good sex life, and I do like to hear about it. But this is the only time they talk to me about it, and it feels so taunting and spiteful. We have had it before, and one of them described as the only time they've actually enjoyed a three-way. Both of them react positively to pictures I send, and they say they find me attractive. I feel unable to ask about why we aren't having sex, because I know they don't owe me anything. But as a relatively high libido 20s male, my needs are definitely not being met by this arrangement. Second, it has become clear that I will have to play a secondary role in this quote-unquote relationship. When I ask to clarify what my involvement in their lives will look like, one says that I will have a relationship of sorts. And the other dodges the question and is emotionally detached, saying only that if he doesn't get emotionally attached to me, he can't be disappointed. I don't think I will be happy long-term if it means that I'll always be made to feel like the secondary villain. At the same time, the one that isn't emotionally detached is often insanely affectionate and always talking about all the things that he wants to do and have, making it clear that he and they envision a life with me and even has said that he loves me like he loves his boyfriend. But he never goes so far as to say I will be their boyfriend and continues to call me just a friend. In a lot of ways, I am functionally in a relationship with them but it seems as if they are unwilling or unable to open their relationship dynamic up to include me in any sort of official, more primary capacity. I don't know if the idea of being able to have more than one boyfriend just hasn't occurred to them, or if they are truly not interested in a more equitable poly setup. I have no experience polyamory, and this being the first time I have ever been serious with more than one person. Is it possible to push them towards a relationship model that would more suit my needs, or is this something I would have to get used to or GTFO?
5: So I did something I rarely do and I stopped listening to your call, your question about halfway through because I just had to get you on the phone. Break up with these guys. I wanted to say run, but you don't have to run. You just have to stay put because they're somewhere else. Stop wasting your time dealing with these crazy people who don't want to fuck you, don't want to let you have sex with anybody else, want a commitment from you, won't commit to you not even commit to forming some sort of emotional attachment to you this isn't some sort of potential thrupple. this is bullshit this is a steaming pile of crap on a plate why are you sitting there with a knife and a fork in your hands contemplating eating it
8: I, I, I've known
7: them for a long time and <sighs>
5: There, maybe there was something at the end of the call that, that, that would help me to understand why you're wasting your time on these guys who don't fuck you, seem very controlling, and hold you at an arm's length emotionally, keep you at this distance while demanding your fealty in a way that makes no fucking sense. And they do owe you something. I'm sorry. You say they don't owe me anything. All right. That's, you know, that's what we're all supposed to say. But if you make demands on someone, like you're not allowed to fuck anybody else, then you owe them a fucking Yourself. And that's not a commodified exchange. That's a healthy adult sexual relationship with reasonable expectations. It's reasonable for them to expect you not to fuck other people if you have, you know, a tri-party monogamous commitment. It is unreasonable of them to expect you not to fuck anybody else while they're not fucking you. Because they might, in theory, want to or they just want to fuck each other and torture you with that information without ever... Draining your balls? Dude, what are you doing? Why are you wasting your time on these guys?
7: I got just blinded by getting affection, I guess, for for what? For, for kind of the first time in my life, but mm.
5: Okay. Don't settle for this kind of affection. This isn't affection with strings attached. This is like barbed wire attached. This is affection with the kind of strings attached that if you get wrapped up in those strings, you're going to Get cut. You're going to die the death of a thousand cuts.
7: And yeah, it's already kind of starting to happen. Okay, well, too. there you go.
5: You can have a conversation with them where you say, look, if you want this commitment from me, these are my expectations. This is what I expect from you. And if we can't meet each other's needs, reasonable needs, then I can't be your, I don't know what I am. Am I your third? Am I your boyfriend?
7: you think I should have a conversation with
5: them? Well, no, I don't. I'm just giving you – I'm allowing you to have a conversation with them if that's what you feel like you need to do for some closure. Even though everyone knows how I feel about closure. Closure we can do on our own. We don't need somebody else to close anything for us. We can close the door ourselves on shitty people that we had a bad relationship with. But if you want to give it one last try, you should say to them, I am willing to not have sex with anybody else. That means you guys – are my sex partners. And so that creates obligations for you to meet my needs, my reasonable needs sexually. Asterix, not everybody gets everything that they want out of a relationship, sexual or otherwise. But no sex ever? While I'm not allowed to have sex with anybody else? Am I your boyfriend or are you guys starting some sort of celibate priesthood to worship you?
7: It, It feels like that sometimes.
5: Yeah, run. There are people out there who really enjoy picking the wings off flies. There are couples out there that are toxic, that enjoy picking the wings off flies together. Sounds like they're that kind of couple. That your desire for them, your pathetic desire for them, you're crawling to them and getting nothing in return, turns them the fuck on, consciously or subconsciously, on some level. They're enjoying watching you crawl. And what are you getting out of it? Do you enjoy crawling? Crawling? No, not really. Dude, run. There are other men in the world, other couples in the world, if you want to date a couple, that aren't so fucking toxic. And maybe their toxicity isn't intentional. Maybe this is all not happening in their conscious minds. Maybe they're not aware of how shitty they're being to you and unfair they're being to you. Not that it's your job to acquaint them with how shitty they're being. It seems obvious. But some people are really just that dense. And when two dense people come together and become a couple – the denseness can metastasize denseness squared (laughs) self-reinforcing denseness. But if you point it out to them and they still don't see it, even if you point it out to them and they do see how shitty they're being, do you want to be with people who aren't capable of any sort of self scrutiny?
7: No, I guess that'll only cause problems down the line anyway. Yeah, Even if this gets,
5: even if this gets fixed. Get on grinder, get on Scruff, get on Recon, get on whatever. Get out of the house, go to a bar, join a gym, go for a walk, ride a bike. There are lots of gay guys out there. Lots and lots and lots and lots. You don't have to settle for these jerks. Dossie Easton said this on the show a long time ago, and I just think it's, so many of us have this fear of being alone. because then we're alone, and losers are alone. And she said this thing that I just think is so smart. I, I find myself repeating it often to my friends, not even just on the show, that it's better to be alone because you're alone than alone because you're with the wrong person or people in your case. Alone because you're alone, you can do something about. Alone because you've chosen to remain with the wrong people, that's harder to do something about. Okay. Good luck, dude. Don't go back to these guys. Thank <laughs> you. Block them. Don't even call them. Just fucking block them. Show them what unavailable looks like by making yourself unavailable.
7: Uh, all right. I was supposed to drive down
3: tomorrow, but I guess that.
5: <laughs> no, I lot. forbid you. <laughs> I'm going to come. I'm going to get on a plane and come take your car keys. I forbid you from driving down to see them. Don't do it. Okay. Bye.
1: Hi, Dan. This is a 22 year old female from a Western state And I have a question regarding, like, revenge porn. So I've been hooking up with this guy that I met through work. We don't work in the same organization, but we work in the same, like, industry. Um, And it's a pretty small industry. So we were hooking up this weekend, and he took a few videos of me giving a blowjob, which I didn't really see happen, but I know that it did. Um, And so I've asked to see the videos multiple times and he hasn't shown me and he's like, you know, don't worry about it. And I'm like, well, yeah, it's kind of hard not to. So I was just wondering if there's anything I can do to protect myself in this situation. I don't know what the protocol
5: is for this stuff. You can't make him delete the video now. Doesn't sound like he would respect the request and there's no way to ensure beyond a shadow of a doubt that even if he said he did, even if he showed you his phone and showed you him deleting the videos that he hadn't uploaded them to another platform and you can delete a photo or a video and then go to recently deleted on your phone's photograph app or section. I don't know what it's called and retrieve the videos, retrieve the photos a, a, a few minutes later. So trust is so important when somebody whips out a phone during intercourse, as so many people do. And I'm not faulting you for not telling him to put the fucking phone away, but that was the moment where you could have headed this off at the past. Like you can get a blow job or you can have your phone in your hand, but you can't get a blowjob and have your phone in your hand. If you have to have that kind of conversation with someone though, you can't know perhaps whether there are other cameras Elves on shelves hidden in their room that are photographing or videotaping the sex that you're having. So I would, if I were you and I was concerned, look up the local statutes. Do you live in a state that has criminalized revenge porn? Do you live in a place where if somebody uploads a video or photograph of someone doing something sexual, a sex naked or having sex to a web platform To embarrass or humiliate them or just to upload it, not even intending to embarrass or humiliate them just because they're boundaryless assholes. Is the law on your side Can you have this person prosecuted? Can you file a complaint? If you can, it's very likely a felony. Some places it's a sex crime. So you could call him and say, look, I'm sending you the relevant criminal code here. I know you got this video means you're never going to get a blowjob from me again because I don't feel like I can trust you. I don't feel safe in a room with your dick in my mouth. Congratulations, you've got a video of a blowjob, but you're never getting another one from me, an actual one, which is better than a video. But just so you know, this is the law here where we live. And I will file a complaint. I will not be shamed if you do something wrong. I'm not be shamed into silence. I will avail myself of this protection and you will face these consequences. If you live in a state that does not have a revenge porn statute, please write to your representatives in the state legislature. Please write to your representatives in Congress and let them know that we need at the state level, wherever you are, revenge porn statutes and at the national level, a revenge porn statute. More and more people are filming everything and taking photographs of everything. And we need this protection so that people aren't violated or humiliated were abused in this way without there being consequences for the abuser and the violator.
9: Hi Dan, I'm a 20-year-old straight woman calling from Canada and I'm calling about a situation my boyfriend and I are a bit concerned about. So my boyfriend lives in a duplex home and essentially there's a shared wall dividing the space, although ordinarily we can't really hear anything going on next door. Um, His neighbors are a middle-aged couple with a daughter in her late teens or early 20s. And um, according to my boyfriend over the years, there's been a lot of arguing and shouting that he can hear, but he's always sort of just figured it's been the standard stuff relating to, you know, raising a teenager. Recently, however, we've heard something that's really concerning me um, with regards to the girl's safety. So three times we've heard her shout clear as day, really, really loudly, get the fuck out of here, you fucking pervert. Um, and both of i both of us have heard this, and I don't know, I'm just really bothered by this because it seems like a really strange thing to yell if you're just in a standard argument with your parents. And I'm not sure if it's better to err on the side of caution in this situation, but um, we don't exactly know what we can or should do about it. Because the girl's older, we don't think this would fall under Child Protective Services. So the only two options we can think of is to make an anonymous call to the police and say, look, this is what we've heard. or to have my boyfriend maybe message this girl on Facebook to ask if everything's all right. We're both on the fence here and it's really troubling for me. So we're wondering if you think we should just mind our own business despite hearing this repeatedly or if we should do something.
5: If it was a child we were talking about, if a 12-year-old was screaming, get the fuck out of here, you pervert, I would probably myself call CPS. That we're talking about someone who's in her late teens, early 20s, can't call child protective services. So the police are your only other option beyond contacting her on Facebook and asking if she's all right, which is a totally legit option right now. I think in the United States, we need to be very conscious of when calling the police might be a terrible idea. There are so many incidents where the police have been called and because the person that the police are being called about is African American, they have been shot or killed or brutalized. So I would think long and hard about calling the police Right now in this country, if this family is black, you'd have to ask yourself, does the police department in my area have a history of shoot first, ask questions later? Do the police in my area have a difficult time distinguishing cell phones from rifles or handguns when they're being held by black people? Because you would hate to call the police in a situation like this and have it escalate as it has escalated in so many incidents elsewhere in the country. Now, why would an 18 to 22 year old scream, get the fuck out of here, you pervert or start screaming that at a parent? I can think of a lot of reasons, including of course, that this person is being preyed upon or made to feel uncomfortable or has been hit on. Additionally, it's possible that this person just found dad or mom's porn stash or this person found dad or mom's sex toy collection or just found out by stumbling over something on a shared computer that dad and or mom are swingers or not monogamous or into BDSM. There's a lot of reasons why a teenager or young adult living at a home with mom and dad might start screaming, you fucking pervert at them that aren't they're being molested or raped or preyed upon. But of course it could be the latter. It could be that in your shoes. If this were a minor, I would call CPS in your shoes. I would hesitate to call the police, particularly if this is an African American family in your shoes. I would definitely reach out to this kid via Facebook. Say, we hear you screaming this. Are you okay? Is there something wrong? Do you need help? We are concerned. Maybe no one has ever said that to this kid in their entire life. Maybe if they do have terrible parents, we don't know what kind of family this is. We don't know what the dynamics are. Maybe no one has ever said to this kid, are you okay? Do you need help? And they have been waiting to hear that or needing to hear that for 18 years or 20 years. You could be the breakthrough. You could save a life just by asking that question. I hope what you get back is I'm fine. I hope this is a situation where a kid is sex-shaming mom and dad for being perverts in their estimation and not a kid being preyed upon but many 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 millions of children all across this country are preyed upon every year including young adult children living at home if you're already in touch with this kid on facebook or you can reach out to this kid via social media i think you should absolutely do that
10: hi i am a 35 year old woman living in new york i have been dating this guy for about a month and a half and it's been amazing and i've been trying to do this different like not asking friends about him just you know keeping it like between us well until today i asked someone who knows his ex-wife and she freaked out saying no 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 this guy is a sex addict a pathological liar he had a lot of hookers a lot of you know infidelity This, that, and the other just made him sound like an awful sociopath, really. And, you know, basically sex shamed every single person that she could in, you know, telling me this. Um, He has hinted that he's had some trauma in his life, but, you know, and that it's hard for him to share. But, you know, that's the extent of it. So I'm supposed to see him tonight and I don't know what to do with all this information. And of course, I was sworn to secrecy from said source. So by the time you answer this, if you answer it, I will have probably already floundered a conversation. But still, it would be my great honor and pleasure to hear what you have to say about this.
5: I think it's unfair to go to someone and say, here's everything I know about the person you're dating right now, and then swear them to secrecy and tell them they can't tell the person that you're dating what you now know. Because it's impossible not to know what you know. And unless your second bit of advice or your second suggestion after don't tell them that you know this or how you found out about this is person is so dangerous and such a menace that you should instantly delete and block and just ghost on this person. Unless you can put those two things together, you just can't tell someone, Oh, here's what I know about the person you're dating, but you're not allowed to know that you know it. Tell them that you know it or tell them how you found out about it. So what your friend did or this other person did who wasn't this man's ex wife Initially, when I began to listen to the call, I I misheard it the first time and thought we were talking about his ex-wife, that she reached out to you proactively to warn you off this guy. No, this is just somebody in your social circle who knows this guy and knows the wife and unloaded this all on you. And I think on some level you suspected that there might be bad news. This guy might have a past or a history that you didn't want to know about because the sex was so good. You didn't want the sex to stop. Because you isolated yourself from this kind of input. You weren't telling your friends or anybody that you knew that you were dating this guy. In a way, doing the work for an abuser, potentially. Not saying he's an abuser, but abusers isolate people. And it's a bad idea to self-isolate just in case you're dating an abuser. You don't want to do an abuser's advance work for them. Don't isolate yourself. Well, someone pierced your isolation. Now you know this shit about this guy. What do you do? Well, you could talk to him about it. A lot of people are charismatic shitbags. People typically don't get into relationships with people who they take one look at or they talk to for five minutes and realize that this person is a lying, cheating scumbag who's going to run around with sex workers and have mistresses and deceive you. People wouldn't run from that person before any of that was possible. So you have to weigh when you confront somebody with something you found out about them, that is relationship disqualifying against the charisma that this person must possess. Otherwise they wouldn't have been able to get into a relationship with someone long enough to deceive them in this way and to make a judgment based on the information that you received from the friend of the wife. And then based on the conversation that you have with the person you're fucking right now, it doesn't even sound like you're dating, about whether you want to continue to see them. Now maybe since this is brand new and non-exclusive, he got out of this relationship and realized he can't be monogamous and isn't going to make monogamous commitments going forward. So he can't violate those monogamous commitments going forward and you don't have a sexually exclusive relationship. So he has other girlfriends or mistresses or occasionally sees sex workers in the context of a non-exclusive fuck buddy kind of FWB thing. He's not doing anything wrong. He's not wronging you necessarily. That's not a relationship you want. If you don't want to be with somebody who's, with other people concurrently and isn't open and honest with you about that, then you should end this thing. Call us back. Let us know how that convo with him went. I bet everybody's curious. I know I am.
4: Hey, Dan, 29-year-old straight male here living on the East Coast in a long-term monogamous relationship with a bisexual 28-year-old female. My question is related to non-monogamy and libido. I'm in a monogamous relationship but have cheated, which my partner is aware of. Let me be clear that this is not an excuse, but my libido is high. I don't mean need sex every day high, I mean before my eyes are open, sex. Walking to my car, sex. When I walk down the street, I sexualize everyone around me, it's uncomfortably high. While I don't excuse what I did, I believe my brain's wiring around sex had a part to play. My partner has a high sex drive too and would happily give me as much sex as I would like. The problem is that I just want to fuck everyone, not in a knuckle-dragging douchebag way so I can brag to my buddies, but it's a very personal internal thing. I want to fuck people as objects. It feels very primal and return. I want to be treated like an object, like a biological vessel for pure uncomplicated pleasure. I would class myself as a strong feminist, even activist in social, economic and political issues. I love women. I'm fascinated by them. The female form in its entirety is something I marvel at every day and will never tire of. I want to please women above my own pleasure. I think it's also the thought of how different bodies can be that sets me on a sex frenzy every day. I should mention I watch porn a lot to try and dampen my libido, but to no effect. I masturbate every day, sometimes as much as 12 times. I've had this high awareness and interest of sex since before puberty. I've also recently been diagnosed with a psychiatric condition, which makes me extremely and sometimes dangerously impulsive. It also affects the dopamine receptors in my brain. I haven't done enough research on the link to libido, but I guess this is something to consider. I told my partner about my huge and constant sexual drive and other, around other women uh, and asked to open our relationship. Uh, as she doesn't have the same mental wiring, if you will, and doesn't have these instant and intense sexual attractions to people, she does not feel the need to open our relationship. Uh, I also imagine she feels insecure given my infidelity, which I totally understand and respect. I know you say non-monogamous people should date each other, but I was young when we met and I thought I could change. I truly now feel that this isn't just a phase, it's genuinely who I am. I also hadn't heard your podcast at the time. I'm sure that she's my 8.9 rounded up to a one that at the moment I see myself being with you for the rest of my life, but I cannot fathom going a few weeks, let alone years not having sexual encounters with other humans. Do you have any advice about how to talk about opening a relationship again and any research or resources or colleagues in medical professions that could help me in understanding such a high and unrelenting libido?
5: You and your girlfriend may be sexually incompatible. I think the conversation you need to have with her about the fact that you cheated is that knowing yourself the way you know yourself now and what a high libido you have, you are going to cheat again that you cannot honor the monogamous commitment that you made earlier in ignorance of yourself. You hoped and expected as the culture trains us to hope and expect that you could change your sexuality, that you could alter yourself and you know now that you can't. And so you have to have a brutal conversation with your partner about whether you two are right for each other going forward. You don't want her well, maybe you do want her to be poly under duress or open under duress, Pud or out. Not always a good look, especially when I think men manipulate women into puddom. It also has a sheen of misogyny and male dominance and female deference sort of layered over it. But there are a lot of people who are afraid of opening up the relationship because it might mean X, Y, or Z. And only after they're in an open relationship do they realize that it doesn't have to mean X, Y, or Z. It doesn't have to mean jealousy, insecurity, or being left for someone else. That it is possible for someone to remain loyal even in the context of an open relationship. It's possible to be faithful in an open relationship. A lot of people don't believe that to be true because of the bullshit that is out there that's constantly repeated about open relationships and the way they work or don't work. And sometimes you got to get into one to see that the bullshit is indeed bullshit. Just like to realize the bullshit that you've been told about gay people requires knowing a gay person, not being inside a gay person. The bullshit about open relationships sometimes is only disproved when you know people in open relationships. Even then you may doubt until you are in one yourself and you go, Oh, okay. I see how this can work. I see why this works. I see why this might be a better choice for us. Even if it was an imposed choice on me initially, I see why now it's better for me and I'm happier in this way. I'm not saying that's always the case. There are definitely people out there that monogamy is right for. And a monogamous relationship is absolutely the kind of relationship that they need to be happy and safe and content and secure. And there is nothing wrong with that. If monogamy is what works for you, do monogamy. You tried caller. Gave it your best shot. There's not a lot of people out there doing non-monogamy under duress because they think that's what they're supposed to want. There are, however, a lot of people out there doing monogamy, particularly younger people, because they've been told that's the only choice that they're allowed to make. That you've reached a fork in the road. You've already cheated once. You know because of your insanely high libido, and you can take the edge off that with SSRIs if you want to medicate yourself. You mentioned that you have a mental illness. You didn't mention whether it's being treated, whether you're in treatment or counseling or therapy or medicated. If not, maybe this is a little bit of obsessive-compulsive disorder stuff. Maybe it's related to bipolar disorder, if that's your issue. And being in treatment or being medicated may take the edge off what, frankly— sounds like an exhausting way to move through the world. If Everywhere you go, you're just on the hunt, looking for objects and obsessing and thinking about sex 24-7, which a lot of us obsess and think about sex 22-7, 18-7, 16-7, 12-7 and manage. But 24-7, that sounds a little exhausting. So if you're not being treated for your mental illness, whatever it is, treatment might help take the edge off. If you are in treatment and you're still in this place, it might just be your sexuality and how you're wired and how it works. I don't think there's anything wrong with your libido being where it is. Careful with the objectification thing. Call yourself a feminist. Say you see people as objects. Hopefully you don't see them only as objects. Even if you are having an object to object encounter with someone, I hope you are being conscious and careful and considerate of their person, their humanity, their feelings, their desires, their agency. Even as you are object to object, squishing your objects together, you can do both those things at once. But to wrap this up, you can't keep doing what you were trying to do, what you were attempting to do. Now you know that. You need to tell your girlfriend that so she knows it. And she can make a fully informed decision about whether she wants to be with you going forward. One of you is going to have to pay the price of admission. I don't think it is going to be you. Considering you've already cheated. Considering the way you move through the world. Considering the way your sexuality works. I don't think monogamy is a price of admission that you are capable of paying. Is non-monogamy a price of admission that she is capable of paying? Well, only she can answer that question. If the answer for her is no, irreconcilable differences, sexual incompatibility, you will have to find new partners at that point.
10: Hi, this is for the caller in episode, I think 602, uh, the teacher. Um, I wanted to send along some advice um, for ways to talk about this. I thought Dan's advice was great to bring it up and have the students bring something into the curriculum. The other thing you could do is read books by um, non-white male authors. And, and those conversations will naturally happen where you just get empathy for somebody who doesn't have the same experience as you. And you can have a conversation with people in the class about that. And it doesn't—it can be based in the fiction. It doesn't have to be based in the social uh, movements. Um, best of luck. I really think you're doing great. I live in a conservative state. I teach in a conservative state and I'm fucking liberals, fuck. So if I can do it, you can do it too. More um, power to you.
8: Hey Dan. This is a response to the woman calling at the start of episode 602 who enjoys her orgasms from masturbation so much more than the ones she has with her partners. I had a similar situation with my now-fiancé, then-girlfriend. We just embraced it. Instead of making her feel like she had to come the best way possible with me at all times, I told her there was no pressure, and that if she wants to get off from masturbation, we can do that together. So usually what happens is we'll have some great PIV, I'll come, And then I'll sort of just lay next to her on my side and cradle her head in my arms and just kind of hold her and make out with her, stroke her hair, kiss her on the forehead while she gets off watching porn on her phone with a vibrator, which is how she would do it on her own. She calls this masturbation 2.0 because it's everything she always loved about masturbating. You know, there's no performance expected. There's no expectations at all, but there's extra sensory and feeling, and it's just better is what her words were. So maybe that's one idea for that person to try.
1: Hi, Dan, I have a comment for the woman who found the camera in her toilet, um, whose husband was recording her poop. I cannot believe that, first of all, that happened, but that she has kids who are probably using that toilet too. And that you didn't say anything that maybe he has videotapes of his children. So this guy is making child porn. Potentially. And if I were going to sit down and have a conversation with him, I would demand to know if he was filming my kids in this way. Anyways, love the show. What the fuck? Bye.
5: Where are we going to leave it? We're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206 302 2064 tech savvy at risk youth are standing by ready to take your call if you like the political ranting at the top of the show you should also be listening to blabbermouth the strangers weekly politics and news podcast hosted by pulitzer prize winning journalist eli sanders join me and eli and rich smith and others as we dissect the news and tear our hair out every day mouth again go to itmfa.org to get yourself an impeach the motherfucker already coffee cup or t-shirt or hat or button itmfa.org follow me on twitter at FakeDanSavage. savage the savage love cast is produced every week by nancy hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and nancy we'll all be back at you next week my installment of the savage love cast thanks for downloading